If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Ask the fucking question to these overseers, to these prison administrators, these governors, these senators, these representatives. Ask them the question, why do you think placing someone in the in a closet for an extended period of time is going to keep communities safe, one, rehabilitate them, two, and return them back to society whole. Like, how do you think that? And I'll say to your audience, like, imagine being put in the closet for 23 hours and there's only one time that you come out of that closet and that is either for recreation, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and then you go back into that closet and you're in an environment that is sensory depriving. Why do we allow this to continue to happen in the most sophisticated country on this planet? On this planet. 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 Welcome to Wow Black, a seriously opinionated podcast bringing you the real and raw on anything happening while black. If black culture's there, we're there. If you're pissed or empowered, then let's talk about it. Ride with us on this all black everything. Everybody, welcome back to Wild Black. That's when Art would jump in. Art's not here today. His pops is in town, so he is kicking it with, with his father. But we are still here. And just like we always do, we've got an amazing, thought-provoking, relevant episode that ties into who you are and whom you are. And I won't do a real long intro on this one, but it's easy for me to talk about this topic because one, I don't really know enough about it, right? I think this is one of the things that so many of us think we understand because it's in our faces all the time, but there gotta be a lot of misconceptions that we're operating with. When I think about how, how this episode starts, I can't help but think about like this country just in general. And a lot of you all listening today are in the United States of America. You're in the U.S. And for those of you all here, if I'm honest, I'm sure there are a lot of things you like about this country. Now, put your ego aside. Don't be stubborn. or like We know there are problems here, but there are a lot of things that you like. Think about those for a moment. But as you think about the things you like, I am sure there is a very, very long list of the things you don't like here. For me, just off the top of my head, not a fan of the anthem, racial oppression, the, the tax system. I can go on and on. The bias inside of every system that we operate in. I've got a list of things I don't like about this country. But one of the ones at the top of that list One of the ones that scares me the most, one of the ones that infuriates me the most is our criminal criminal legal system, our justice system, or like several guests have said, our injustice system. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Our guest today is Brother Sean Wilson. He can speak directly about the system from more angles than can most. He can speak from the everyday citizen perspective. He can speak from the perspective of the organizing director of dream.org. Or he can speak from the perspective of a person who's been inside the system and was not free to leave in the moments. So I want you to pay attention to today's episode because these are the kind that save lives, that save freedoms, and they help to keep us in the know and out of the places that we don't want to be. So with that, Sean, welcome to Wild Black, brother. Thank you for having me, brother. Man, how's your day been? Um, It's been pretty hectic this morning, <laughs> but, you know, we, we made it do what it do. We made it happen. Yeah, that's that's what a day is normally like. That's what Absolutely. a day is normally like. Well, listen, do me a favor. Take just a few seconds. Tell the people who you are and why you're here. 
Absolutely. So my name is Sean Wilson. I am a father. I am a husband. I am a brother, cousin. I'm a homie. And things, I'm just, you know, a young man from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Right. Um, born and raised, who happens to be directly impacted by the criminal legal system here in America. Right, 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 right. We're going to get into our wild black shit. But I'll, sometimes things just feel like I got to go a different direction. So before we jump into our standard wild black shit, because I'm honestly so excited about this episode, take a second and just tell our listening audience from your head or from your heart, as we talk about this work that you are obviously passionate about, what is the one major thing you want everybody listening to get from today's episode? I love it. He's putting thought to it. I love it. I want people to get from today's episode that there's a system right. that is called the criminal legal system. Right. This system is a continuation of a system that we once knew as chattel slavery. This system is a system that we once knew of as convict leasing. Yeah. This system is a system that once put black people in the field from sunup to can't see. And it still is with us today in 2023. And no longer are they referring to us as slaves anymore. They're referring to us as inmates, offenders, mm. convict. And black people are disproportionately impacted by this system. And the 13th Amendment said that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist in the United States of America except as a punishment for a crime. So our country is telling us that if you commit a crime, you're no longer treated like a human. You're no longer respected. It's easy to dehumanize you. It's easy to not grant you the rights that every other American has because you have committed a crime. But black people seems to get the heaviest blow from this system in comparison to any other race in this country. And the question that we don't have to ask, but let's ask for a conversation more so a conversation on where do we go from here and how do we dismantle and disrupt this system that continues to harm black people, but a conversation on innovative solutions. Because we can talk about the problem until we're blue in the face. But if we're not... If we're not injecting into the conversation solutions, then all we're doing is getting people riled up and making ourselves upset as a result of what has happened to us in this country as a people and what continues to happen to us as a people. And that was a great answer. And one, I want to commend you because I sit across from a bunch of people and I, I do this myself sometimes. I asked you a question that gives you the opportunity to truly speak from your heart, right? And some people, I don't know if they get nervous. I know sometimes I do. And you just talk fast and blurt out an answer, right? And maybe to get through the, the pressure of the moment. But what I appreciate in you is from start to finish, you took your time and you thought about the words. And, and what I got out of that is how much they mean to you. So I appreciate that, brother. Thank you. Absolutely. That's going to be a, a social media clip right there. No doubt, no doubt. All right, well, let's get into this wild black shit. Art's not here, so I'm going to fumble through this. Wild black shit is three questions. The first two are fun, conversational questions. The last is our signature question. So I'm going to ask them and, and get your response to each one. You ready? All right. Question one. We all know black folks and our relationship with hair, right? S-curl, Jerry curl 
Gumby, high top, low top, bald. We've done all these things, right? Yeah. What's the one hairstyle, haircut for you that you tried, you rock for a moment, but when you look back at the pictures, you're like, man, what the fuck was I doing? Why <laughs> did I why did I do that to myself? What's the one for you? I, I know mine say, off the top of my head. I was I, I I cut all my hair off. When something happens to your kitchen, you might say, This is ludicrous. But that won't fix your home. That will only get you the rapper, Ludacris. Having trouble? Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. You need to file a claim? Holla at State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. You can file a claim on the app or call us. Thanks, Mr. Chris. No matter how ludicrous the situation, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Right. Um, See, I... I Mine is cut off too, but it, yeah. it, I had no choice. Yeah, <laughs> and and the reason why I cut my and in fact I was in the joint and just for your audience to know, you know, individuals who have spent time in prison usually refer to prison as the joint. Yeah, and so um, I was in the joint and I ended up going to get my hair cut and he butchered me, <laughs> and I'm Absolutely. like, what the fuck? And so I got back to the to the to the compound, and of course, you know the. Everybody laughing at me, and I'm like, I can't do this, man. So I shaved <laughs> all of my hair off. Um, and initially, I was like, okay, I can do this. I, I'm rocking this. I'm rocking this. And so I got called Tyrese. I mean, the homies was calling me. Sweet um, lady. Yeah, they, I'm, I'm talking about calling me. Uh, every black man that you know that's bald head and this is a celebrity, they called me. It. Man, I think every black man in America past the age of, like, 26 has got to have a barber story. Yeah. I won't go into mine, but I wanted to fight. Yeah. I was hot. Because once it's gone, yeah. It's gone. Yeah. All right, question two. <laughs> I have to laugh because when I thought about this, when I thought about myself, we are the kings and queens of excuses. Lord knows if there's something socially that we have committed to doing. Yeah. And that moment rolls around and you sit on your couch or your bed, you're like, man, this is the last thing I want to do in the world. I don't know why I said yes. Why do I always say yes? God, why do I do this to myself? Here's the thing we do. Come up with an excuse. Yep. Right? We, we good for one, right? What is your go-to excuse when you have committed to something that you no longer want to do socially? Man, you can't put my, you can't, <laughs> let, you can't make me put my secret out there. <laughs> Everybody listen, if he hits you with this one, you know what it is. I always, I always, you know, resort to my babies, man, because I think that we all are parents. And, yep. you know, most of us are parents and, you know, people understand. People yeah. understand, listen, you know, daddy duties, I got to do this, you know, and people understand that doesn't cause for further explanation. Yep. But when you say, listen, I got, you know, something up with my kids and I got to take care of that, that's completely understandable. Yep. That's your past. Go yep. handle your business as yep. a parent. My go-to kids and wife, man. Yep. Wife <laughs> tripping, bro. She, she got this list. Oh, man, I forgot we got to get these kids to this party. We yep. got to pick them up from this party. We got we to gotta run to the school. That That is my go-to. Yeah. And you know the beautiful thing about it? Because no one can ever tell if it's a lie because we do get so busy with these other things. Yeah. Yeah. All right, signature question. Ready? Yeah. What do you love most about life while black? I love the fact that we predate the calendar, man. Ooh, I ain't heard this one before. We I predate the calendar, man. When you look at this world and the way that it is structured and when you have a historical understanding of history, period, History before it was even called history, mm -hmm. you see us. Like, it doesn't matter where you look in the world, you see black people. Yeah. And that is one of the things that I want us as a people to really tap into, to understand that before all of these labels were assigned upon us and um, um, thrown upon us, like, we were kings, queens, like scientists, engineers, like our roots literally predate the calendar. Man, you said And I that. love that. I love the fact that my roots, you know, is really ingrained in the earth, you know, like you can really, no matter how deep you dig into the earth, you know who you go find? A black man, a black woman. Hey, bro, you, you, 
you make a social media easy. <laughs> Real talk. Um, again, 210, 15 episodes in. That's the first time we've heard an answer like that. Okay. And, and we get a bunch of answers, right? Yeah. And, and there's, when you look at the trend line that's set by the answers to that question, you can see themes pop out, right? Yeah. Perseverance. Yep. I didn't say that word right. I can't get the word right. Perseverance. Um, um, like you can't get it right. Yeah, perseverance. You know, <laughs> Thank we, you, you perseverance. Know, yeah, perseverance. Right, yeah. but I couldn't get it to save my life. <laughs> Resilience. Yeah. Intellect. But the idea of predating something, man. That, we always been here. Yeah, we always been we here. We always been here. I love We that. always been here. All right, dope quote. You ready? The dope quote is something from religion or science or history, entertainment, math. It doesn't really matter, but it comes from the mouth of someone black most of the time and has relevance on the episode. I took today's quote directly from some of your work. So I want to okay. read this and then get your thought to it. If there is no struggle, there is no progress by Frederick Douglass. When you hear that, brother, what comes to mind for you? A lot of things come to mind. Um, I think that when we think back to 150-plus years ago, our ancestors, man, our predecessors, man, were stepping off of slave plantations where their children were ripped from their arms, where black men were beaten in front of black women, where we didn't have a pot to piss in. They freed us without our 40 acres and a mule. And look at where we are today. Like, the amount of black millionaires that are surrounded, we're surrounded by, you know, the, 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 the black success stories that we see and hear every day, despite the shit that we go through, yeah. we continue to forge ahead. We continue to apply pressure. It doesn't matter, man, what they throw at us. We're going to push through that shit. Yeah. And that speaks to our resilience. It yeah. speaks to us struggling and reaping the benefits of that struggle, which is progress. Because when yeah. we look back 150 plus years ago to the, um, um, until today, mm -hmm. a great deal of progress has been made. Absolutely. But in that progress, we have to also understand that we're fighting a Goliath. And that Goliath is white supremacy racism. And so, we shouldn't say that we haven't accomplished anything because we had, we have in the face of systemic racism in this system of white supremacy racism, which is predicated on the subject, um, subjugation of black people, yeah. of black and brown people, of all things that isn't white. You read it today, bro. I got to be, man. I you love know? it, man. I, I love gotta it. Be. So listen, let's um let's dive into your story a bit. I want people to understand who you are, what your experiences have been, and why you sit in the position and the places that you sit now. So take a few moments and just indoctrinate us as to who you are and how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. Um Look, I can say indoctrination, but I couldn't <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> um I want people to understand or people to know that I'm that 17-year-old black boy that you see running around at a picnic. I'm that 17-year-old black boy that is coming in from school, throwing his books on the floor and running back out to hang out with his friends. I'm that 17-year-old black boy that is hanging out with his friends doing things that they would dread their parents seeing them engage in. I'm that 17-year-old black boy who had aspirations to be the next Deion Sanders. Um, that little black boy who had as aspirations to be 
the next Michael Johnson on a track field. I'm that 17-year-old black boy that gave in to peer pressure. I'm that 17-year-old black boy that made a poor decision. And as a result of that bad decision, first and foremost, accountability. As a result of peer pressure, I found myself sitting in front of a judge in a courtroom full of white people who said to me, Sean, in your mid-30s, you will be able to be a success to your community. You will be able to contribute to your community. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And she gave me the same amount of time that I lived on this earth in a, cor- in a correctional setting. So she said, 17-year-old black boy, I'm going to give you 17 years in prison, and I'm going to give you 23 years to navigate this thing called re-entry on probation, parole, in Wisconsin extended supervision. And when she said that to me, I was numb. I didn't even understand what all of that time meant, as Ply say. You gave me this, gave this young brother 100 years. They don't even know how much, what this time means. And so, as she was sentencing me, the only thing that was going through my head was, these white folks are going to hate. They gave me this much time to think. Mm. Now, the normal reaction is bitter, rage, hatred. But God had other plans for me where he said, I'm going to give you some time to think. I'm going to give you some time to study. I'm going to give you some time to heal. Because I grew up never knowing my father, which impacted me greatly in what I would say, was a contributing factor to me winding up in prison. But I was given a total of 50 years in prison, 17 of which I was to serve confined and the remainder on probation and parole as a result of poor decision-making, as a result of peer pressure. I went to prison and I spent 17 years educating myself, healing, educating others, and taking a journey all across the world. And that's why when you ask the question, what do you love the most about being Black? And I say that our roots predate the calendar. And that's something that I and others like myself have had the opportunity to do while we were incarcerated was get down into those books, like really travel the world, like Find out who you are, black man. Find out what are your responsibilities first and foremost to yourself, then to your family, then to your community, and then to the world. And that's why I've been able to, you know, navigate that carceral setting the way that I was able to navigate it by being focused. All I did every day was wake up, read, meditate, work out, play chess, and every now and then go out into the day room and have conversations with individuals. I understood that the environment that I found myself in was not life. And so I needed to do everything in my power to get up out of that predicament. And so I freed my mind by immersing myself in books and traveled the world and came into a better understanding of who I was and develop a hunger and urgency for liberation that I didn't even realize that my release date was six months away. And so I sit before you as someone who has gone through the process of healing, accountability, taking responsibility, 
and listening to the stories of others like me and realizing that I have an ab- obligation as a black man to expose the system of mass incarceration and the impact that it has on black people because it's so prevalent. But there seems to be not a sense of urgency amongst our people to dismantle this system the way that there was an urgency amongst our people to dismantle the system of slavery 150 plus years ago. Man, that was, that was a powerful answer. It kicked up a couple questions for me. One, I want to ask two, two at one time. As a 17-year-old boy who sat in the courtroom and listened to the judge sentence him to 50 years or so, how were you able to find the maturity in that moment to think about being able to literally think your way through your time? Right? How were you able to control the emotions that said your freedom was being taken away and replace it with a level of intellect that said you can build yourself? And then the second part to that question is, you told us who the 17-year-old boy that went in was, but who was the grown man who came out? Absolutely. So I was numb in the courtroom. Like, I think I was numb the first two years of my incarceration. And I, um, I was sent to one of Wisconsin's probably most violent prisons, um, mm-hmm. which was called Green Bay Correctional Institution, a maximum facility. And I remember on the bus ride um, to the prison, I heard this old head say, you know, you're on your way to gladiator school. And, you know, I'm not paying attention. I'm shackled hand to, f- hand to foot, looking out the window, looking at all of this farmland that I'm passing and realizing that um, the, the, the metropolis of Milwaukee has disappeared into the farmlands of rural Wisconsin. And so I'm processing like them. I'm a long way from home. And so it wasn't until probably a year into my sentence I was in school, and we were in class, and me and the homies, you know, we're being disruptive. We're ribbing each other, talking about each other. Um, and the teacher has said to us a couple of times, like, hey, keep it down. And we like, yeah, whatever. You know, we're not trying to hear none she's saying. And so I get a tap on my back, and it's this brother who's behind me. He's a tutor. And he's like, hey, man, y'all keep it down. And I'm like, all right. So... I tell the homies, like, hey, let's, let's be cool. After class, this brother came up, up alongside of me, and he had life, natural life, the letter L. He didn't have no numbers. He didn't have a release date whatsoever. Mm. Um, and he came up to me, and we sparked up a conversation. Long story short, he gave me a book, and he was like, hey, man, I want you to read this. And so I go back to my cell, throw the book on my desk, and go about my business. I come back later that night, opened up the book, read the intro, read the conclusion. The name of the book was called The Browder Browder File, 22 Essays for Africans in America. And so um, I take the book back to him like, hey, man, this is a powerful book. And so he says to me, "Uh, okay, tell me about it. So I'm mixing the intro with the conclusion. You know, I haven't even read the book. I I just read the intro and the conclusion. And so he says to me like, hey, man, take the book back and read it. I take the book back, brother, and I literally... He could tell you hadn't read it. Huh? He could tell you hadn't read it. He, he, he was able to tell that I hadn't read it, but all, what, what happened was I, the book was so powerful and put me on the path that I'm currently on that I freehand the book. I wrote the book out freehand. Yeah. Um, and that was the book that began to change my life and make me begin. The book as we speak. Yep. So that, that made me begin to see things in a different light, made me begin to ask questions and made me begin to tap into the the values, the morals, the principles that my grandmother instilled in me. And that helped me get through the 17 years of incarceration that I was given as a kid, essentially. You know, they often say that um, um, children 
brains aren't fully formed until they're well into their 20s. And so I went through the stages of maturation during my incarceration through studying, through having conversations with individuals who never was going to get out of prison. And I was able to um, derive from their perspective on life how I needed to show up not only in this carceral setting, but even upon my release. And so I began to order books, educate myself, challenge other brothers who were coming into the system and give them books and basically, you know, create this think tank that will allow me to focus on the issues that we were fa- that we were dealing with as black people yeah. and come up with some viable solutions to solve these. That's why I'm so solution-oriented. Yeah. Like, I don't want to yeah. hear... We can talk about the problem till we blew in the face. Let's talk about the solutions. Yeah. And so all of that has contributed to the man that I am today, uh, a 40-year-old husband and father. I realized that my grandmother used to always say this, that no weapon forms against you shall prosper. She never said that the weapon would never form. She just said that it wouldn't prosper. So the weapon of incarceration forms against the black community often. Yeah. Every day yeah. it forms against us. But what we have to understand that it should not prosper. It will not prosper. And it won't prosper if we are coming together and recognizing that this system is a continuation of chattel slavery and we need to move with the same sense of urgency that our predecessors move with. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, But the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Like, this is the thinking, this is the mind frame that we have to have. We have to challenge our elected officials who look just like us Mm -hmm. and who are casting a vote of yes or no for legislation that's going to impact us in one way or another. So that is what contributed to the man that I am today, is having the Mm -hmm. opportunity to really sit down and think, to heal to take accountability, to take responsibility for my actions and begin to put forth a path of successful reentry. Because many individuals who come home from prison, they don't successfully reenter. Like, prison really fucks people up. Like, excuse my language, but mm, prison really good. messes people up, man. There's a lot of people that I know to this day who hasn't bounced back from a period of incarceration, man. And that's what I really want people to understand. And not only understand, but I want people to ask the question. Ask the fucking question to these overseers, to these prison administrators, these governors, these senators, these representatives. Ask them the question. Why do you think placing someone in the in a closet for an extended period of time is going to keep communities safe, one, rehabilitate them, two, and return them back to society whole. Like, how do you think that? And I'll say to your audience, like, imagine being put in the closet for 23 hours, and there's only... One time that you come out of that closet, and that is either for recreation, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and then you go back into that closet. And you're in an environment that is sensory depriving. Why do we allow this to continue to happen in the most sophisticated country on this planet? We should not tolerate that. Because we're all impacted one way or the other by this criminal legal system. Those those are our brothers and sisters. 95% of the individuals in prison today are going to return home to our community. They're going to be our neighbors. They're going to be our coworkers. We have to hold this system accountable for how it's treating them and how it's not treating them. And they're not giving us the treatment that we need. They're not giving us the programming that we need. But they're telling taxpayers, oh, we need anywhere from 30000 to upwards of 200000 to cage them. How do you justify that? 
You mean you'll spend $30,000, $200,000 to put me in a closet, but you won't spend this to get me mental health treatment, Brother, substance abuse treatment? Say it, say you won't it, spend that much it. to put me through college? Like, we have to really begin to look at the criminal legal system differently and put forth some solutions that's really going to address the root cause that is, you know, perpetuating this system. Restorative justice is something that um, some, a lot of folks have been become, you know, proponents of, where you basically acknowledge that a harm has been perpetrated. What needs to happen to restore this harm? How do I help not only the victim, but how do I help the perpetrator so there isn't a continuation of harm? Mm, mm, and mm. they're not doing that. That's why you have so many hurt people hurting people. Yeah, they would rather, as opposed to invest in our freedom and allow for our contribution, they invest in our incarceration and benefit from our labor. And, man, you, hey, brother, you, you said that all the way around. While you were talking, I was thinking so many different thoughts, and I want the audience for a second. Before I even say that, I don't have many fears, right? As I walk, I don't have many fears on a daily basis, and it's probably because of how I was raised and in, in my faith and, and, and the life that I see around me. It, it provides me an opportunity to walk without fear in most cases. The thing that I do fear is this system, right? And it is not an irrational fear. It's the fear that the penalization is often for my skin color, right, as opposed Absolutely. to my character, right? There are biases built in to the people who make the decisions that can snatch away my freedom at any time. And from that perspective, not all that much has changed over the last several hundred years. The process has changed slightly. But my fear comes in to play that. I feel powerless in that, right? Mm -hmm. Every day I leave my house, I realize that it could be one of the last days I come home to my house. Yep. And it could be something out of my control. And that fear has only gotten more so as my son has grown up. My son is now 18 years old, getting ready to go off to college. And that's a real fear for me. Yep. And so I love it when you come in here and you start talking about solutions because we we can tend to talk about the problems because they make us feel better. Mm -hmm. But talking about the solutions makes our life better. Yep. Right? And that's where we, to your point, that is where we have to go. So I'm grateful for people like you who come into the conversation and are solution-oriented to help pull us out of this circular pattern talking about our problems. Yep. And there's a space for how you feel, but there ought to be a bigger space for how you change. And so... I think that's where I want to take the interview now. I want to talk about that change. I want to talk about those solutions. I want to talk about the fact that it's called the correctional system, but it's often not correcting anything. Mm -hmm. And it begs the question, does the person coming into the system actually need correction or do they need direction? Yep. Right? Do they need support? Um, so let's talk about like reintegration, right? I want to, I want to talk about the system and how we change it, but I also want to be focused first and foremost on how do we help the families and the people who are coming out of the system right now, right? Mm -hmm. So when you start talking about reintegration into society, what are your thoughts on, on what we can do collectively as a people? What kind of pressures can we apply on the powers that be to make changes? What needs to happen from your experience? There's so much that I can say to this. Right. And I'm not this. No, I'm not the exception. And my situation was kind of unique. A lot of folks who are coming home from the carceral setting, right, um, often don't have family support, right. Um, often don't don't have housing. Um, often don't have employment or transportation to get to and from their employment, right. I had all of those things when I came home from prison. Right. And the reason why I had all of those things is because I had a praying grandmother who walked down 
that 17 years of my incarceration with me, who tore down the hallway to ensure that no matter how far away from home I was, she was coming to see her honey. Um, in two weeks before um, I came home from prison, Take your time, brother. Yeah, two weeks before I came home from prison, man, my sister gave me a call and was like, hey, like Big Mama died. Mm, sorry. And so in that moment, there's two things that I did, but I didn't stay there. I went into a deep depressive state because in that moment I didn't know what I was going home to because she was the only thing that I was planning on going home to and I beat on the wall I slammed the phone um, I yelled at correctional officers they gave me my space because they understood I only had two weeks left and in that moment, I was willing to risk it all because I lost the only girl, in the words of Kanye West, that knew me best, that stood shoulder to shoulder with me as I stood up against the system. She was no longer here. And I knew that I let her down by the decisions I made in life. And... I wanted to come home and make her proud. And leading up to my release, I was just always telling her, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's. And so after I, like, went to my room and was able to, like, reflect and internalize the information that I just got, I made a commitment that I was going to go harder than I ever intended on going. And I often say in interviews and in speeches, the reason why I am so successful um, after spending 17 years in prison is that I got out of prison before I got out of prison. Mm. That I made the transition mentally before I actually made it physically. And so I visualized everything that I wanted to do. I lived each day while I was in prison as if I was already on the streets. I was challenging the prison administrators the same way I challenge legislators and policymakers right now. I was educating brothers the same way that I'm educating brothers and sisters and young people today. And so the support that men and women and children need from their parents, I mean, from their family, is presence. They need their presence. If you're able to visit, visit. If you're able to send letters, send letters. If you're able to put money on your phone, put money on your phone. Those are three of the most powerful things that a family member can do. If you can't go visit, at the very least, keep some money on your phone. If you can't keep money on your phone, at the very least, send a letter. Because that means the world to brothers and sisters in prison to get a letter at mail call from someone, from someone, and also ask them, have a conversation with them. What are your plans upon release? Like, talk it through with them and let them know how you will be able to support them if there's anything that they want to do that aligns with or intersects with what you're currently doing. And in, the reason I say that is because I'm, I'm on a thread. My cousin, he's in federal prison doing his second 13-year bit. And he texts me every morning. I, I'll show you after the, 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 the interview 
But every day, it's what do you got going on? And right. I run off to him my agenda, my plans for the day. Right. And he always conclude, that's what's up, love, cuz. And I, t- I send him books. I challenge his thinking. But we have to make sure that we maintain that contact with our brothers and sisters and young people who are in prison and we're at the door when they come home from prison to help them navigate the reentry process. Because the three biggest things that individuals need upon reentry is housing, transportation, and employment. So to all of the employers, if you're able to employ um, directly impacted individuals, employ them. If you are a landlord and you have housing, ask the question of how you can provide subsidized housing to individuals who are re-entering. If you are a car dealership or if you have access to transportation, ask the question of how you can give directly impacted individuals transportation to and from their employment and also to and from to meet their probation parole agent because that goes a long way. Yeah. You know, the, it's, a lot of people think that it's so complex it's not as complex as people think it is. It's very simple. And the smallest thing go a long way. And so all we have to do is be willing to support this population that is coming home that the data says are the most reliable, are the most reliable. My organization have had multiple conversations with employers who have said to us out their mouth, formerly incarcerated individuals, have been our most dependable and reliable employees in comparison to people who have been with the company 10, 20, 30 years. And that says a lot. That says that you have a population, a workforce population that is directly impacted, that is willing to work at at a job that pays them a livable wage and treats them with respect and dignity and honor and understand that they are someone who has this lived experience, but that lived experience shouldn't be held against them. Yeah, yeah, so it's yeah. easy. It's, it's, so many salu- it's so many things out there that people can do. I'll just touch on just those, you know, I, I'm just going to mention those small things because yeah. I don't want to give people, you know, reach out to your legislator and tell them to, you know, invest in second chance hiring and, you know, um, invest in housing for formerly in car. Like, I'm not going to say that. I'm saying first and foremost, it starts at home. Yeah. And it starts with the community and the home um, front to support these individuals who are coming back into our community. And I love all this information you're giving. And it's... um. It's actionable, right? Absolutely. To your point about this is about solution-based work. And I want the listeners to understand that all the passion they hear in your voice is real, right? It's, you, you can hear the emotion in his voice. And I don't want you to think that this is like a one-man show because it's not. So all the passion you have is partnered with other people in the form of this organization, Dream.org. I'd love it if you could talk a bit about what the organization is doing, mm-hmm. what your role there is, and how you can both help support, but also be helped and supported by people out there listening to this episode now. Absolutely. So Dream.org is a national national nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. Our mission is to close prison doors and open doors of opportunity. And we work in three issue areas. We work in criminal justice reform, where we um, dream of a world beyond poverty, pollution, and mass incarceration. We work in the tech sector where we're working to create equity for black and brown people into the tech sector. And we're also working in the climate justice sector as well to ensure that um, marginalized communities have access to government dollars that has been allocated into the um, the, the climate sector. Right. And wow. so my role at this organization as organizing director It's to build national capacity, build national capacity as it pertains to people power. We understand that we can't do this on our own and that we need everyone at the table. And so my role essentially is a relationship builder. And so I have the opportunity to build relationships with organizations and advocates at the ground level about uh, around how to 
um, bring forth innovative ideas to solve the uh, solve the issue of mass incarceration in this country. Yeah. And usually the way that it goes is um, you, for example, right. we have an empathy network. And so you will sign up for our empathy network. And we have a list of questions that we ask folks on our website that go that where people are signing up for the um, empathy network. How do you want to engage with us? And we ask, do you want to share your story? Nine times out of 10, these are people who are directly impacted by the criminal legal system. They are family members. They are crime survivors. Or they're just people who just want to see this system change for the better. And so we ask them, how do they want to engage with us? They check either all or one of those boxes. If you want to share your story, okay, say, for example, you went to prison for a drug case. Right now, we have a piece of legislation in the U.S. Congress called the Equal Act, which is a piece of legislation that um, eliminates the disparity between crack and powder cocaine, which has been with us for the last 50 years. And right. Thousands of individuals are impacted by the disparity that exists within this law. So we're working to eliminate that disparity and make it retroactive and make it one-to-one. -one. So that means if I, for example, you know, was a white person and right. I get caught with five grams of powder cocaine um, and you get caught as a black man with five grams of crack cocaine, if this law passed, guess what? You and I both receive the same sentence. And that's not how it is right now. That's not how it is right now. Right now, five grams of powder, five grams of crack, you like, you're liable to get 50 years in prison. I'm liable to get five, five years in prison. You know, and so that is unjust. For the same substance. For the same form. substance in a wow. different form. But we know the reason why this law is 100%. the way that it is is because white people are more likely to use powder right. cocaine and black people are more likely to use crack cocaine. Yeah. You know, so in that scenario, we will say to you who just signed up for our Empathy Network, hey, could you share your story of how you're impacted by um, the passage of how you will be impacted by the passage of this law. Um, and then, you know, we will connect this individual with a legislator, a policy person, or whoever that we feel this story can move this person to support um, this legislation getting moved over the finish line. Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah. Or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. And so our goal is to build nationwide capacity amongst directly impacted individuals because we believe that those who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution. Mm -hmm. And this is a quote from Glenn Martin, um, National Criminal Justice Reform Advocate um, and founder of um, several organizations that are working in this space. But he said that those who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but furthest from the resources and the power mm -hmm. to bring about change that they seek. And so we as an organization train leaders up, get them tools, um, get them resources to scale their advocacy at the local, state, and federal level. So I, when I think about it, we're a convener. We're a convener of issue area experts to come together, exchange ideas, um, acquire tools that's going to allow them to pass legislation at the local level, at the state level, and support us in our initiatives at the federal level as a result of their proximity to these issues. And so um, we're working um, in that capacity on our criminal justice reform issues. Um, in our tech um, program, we're currently 
uh, working on something called From Reentry to Retail Tech, where we're having conversations with retail tech companies, asking them, you know, what are some of the barriers um, that we're asking retail tech companies, what are some of the, what are your hiring practices? That's right. what we asked them. What are right. your hiring, second chance hiring practices? And so they've shared what their hiring practices are. And we've also shared with them the experience of formerly incarcerated individuals applying for employment within the retail tech sector and the barriers that they're encountering. And so we feel that bringing those, 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 um, individuals into one space to have conversations on how, one, I'm showing up in the interview process, and two, how the interview process goes for an impacted individual, we're able to begin to remove those barriers and create a pipeline of employment for directly impacted individuals into the tech sector. And so that's a way that we are um, using tech to disrupt um, the system of mass incarceration because if an individual doesn't have access to um, a livable wage, the chance of them reoffending and going back to prison is pretty high. Yeah. And then in our climate program, we are very much aware of what is happening in the in in in, in the climate justice um, movement about you know. Um, waste pollution. Um, we're aware that, you know, communities, marginalized communities um, can easily become wastelands for companies all across this country. Uh, we are aware that legislation is passed that allocates a certain amount of money into this sector, and the chance of those dollars getting to marginalized communities are very um, limited. And so as an organization, we're working to ensure that those dollars are uh, funneled into those marginalized communities. So that's some of the work that we're doing. Um, but we're looking and wanting to work with any and everyone who is committed to solving the problems that we're faced as a society. We understand that getting solutions um, are not going to come about by working in silos. And so the table there's an open invitation from dream.org to any organization, any individual, any community to come and let's discuss what ideas and solutions are out there that's going to begin to reduce the footprint of uh, mass incarceration, what's going to reduce the carbon uh, footprint, what's going to create equitable pathways to employment in the tech sector. We're open to having those conversations, but more than anything, we're open to ensuring that these solutions uh, manifest themselves. Man, you are on it. How, um, how do people tap in? So folks can go to our website, dream.org. Um, they can look at the work that we're doing. If any of that work, you know, grabs them or gravitates to them, they can sign up to join our Empathy Network. This is for individuals who are impacted by the criminal legal system. And what I mean by that, if you are a family member of someone who's currently incarcerated, a family member of someone who is formerly incarcerated, if you are just an ally who wants to um, use your skill, your stories, or your abilities um, to effectuate change within the criminal legal system, I would encourage folks to um, sign up to join our Empathy Network. Um, folks get access to a great deal of things when they sign up to join our, um, our Empathy Network. Uh, we have a training program that we launch every year called Dream Justice Cohort, where we take directly impacted leaders and indirectly impacted individuals, and we put them in a room together to learn advocacy to, um, tools from organizing, from understanding legislation, from digital um, engagement, from public speaking, interacting with media. Like, we understand that directly impacted leaders need access to these tools in order for them to challenge the system of mass incarceration, and not only to challenge the system of mass incarceration, but also to position themselves to continue to navigate successfully the reentry process. And so that's what dream.org is. And again, I'll say this uh, just for emphasis that we are looking to work with anyone and everyone that is committed to addressing the issues that we're facing as a society 
we understand that it's going to take all of us, not some of us, it's going to take all of us to disrupt these systems that have impacted us all in some form or fashion. And our particular, the, the, the three um, issue areas that we're working in, specifically, I'll say it again, is criminal justice reform, um, um, tech, and climate justice. Mm. Brother, you came ready today, man. I, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. We're at the end of the episode, and the last thing I always like to do is hand the mic over to our guest to say whatever is on your heart and mind to share with this audience. And then I'd also double up and tell you that we hear from folks inside the system with some regularity who listen to the podcast. What message do you have for them as well? Self-hate is real. And... I don't need to give a sermon or a lecture of how real self-hate is. But what I would say is the remedy to self-hate is self-love. Yeah. My wife asked me, why do you speak to everyone that we walk by? And the reason why I speak to everyone, nod my head, wave my hand, is because I just come from an environment six, seven years ago where we weren't seen as human beings, where everyone had this tough guy facade. And I know that in society, there are more people locked up mentally than there are people who are locked up physically. And I speak to everyone because I want them to know that I see them. And me speaking to that person can be the very thing that can prevent them from committing a crime, committing suicide, or perpetrating harm on another individual. I want them to know that I see them. But what I want to communicate more than anything to your audience is the power of redemption. The power of cultivating your mind. And when you do that, the world becomes yours because you no longer allow yourself to be victimized by the systems that is intent on dehumanizing us. Frederick Douglass said that it is impossible to make a thinking person a slave. And so I encourage your audience, your listeners, to think, to use your mental capabilities, to come forth with solutions that's going to solve and disrupt and dismantle the issues that we're facing as a society. I'm no longer living for myself. I got a two-year-old and a four-year-old. I'm living for them. And I want the world to be a little bit better than what it was as I was growing up and what it is as an adult. I want the world to be a little bit better, and I want to make sure that I'm contributing to this world becoming better for the sake of my children and the children of everyone who's listening. Bro, that was deep. That was real, man. Tell the folks how they can engage with dream.org, and then we'll wrap this thing up. Absolutely. As Tupac said, I ain't hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> um, so folks can, um, you know, engage with me on social media. They can follow me at um, on Instagram at the fire underscore this time. Um, they can also follow me on Facebook at Sean Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, and they can also follow me on LinkedIn, just my name, Sean Wilson, and also, um, well, Threads, of course. Um, I just jumped on Threads, I, another social media platform. But our organization, you can follow us on um, social media, on Instagram, DreamCore. Um, also follow us on Facebook, DreamCore. And they can also uh, follow us on our website, dream.org. And, you know, you can Google us. 
Um, you can you will see the work that we're doing all across the um, country. Uh, we were the leading organization that got the First Step Act um, passed, signed into law by f- former President Donald Trump. That legislation has brought home over 20,000 people, and we're continuing to work on transformational legislation similar to that that's going to bring thousands of people home. And so I urge folks to plug in with us because the work that we're doing is proximate to them and it is led by them. It is guided by them. And the more people, the better. I love it. Wild Black, peace. We out. We love you. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba-ba.